Photography has evolved from being a way of documenting the world to a way of communicating. I would say there's always been too many photographs in the world, but there's never too many good ones. The way you photograph something and the way you light something should be as beautiful as you can make it. Business, creative, kit and careers. Find out about the world's leading photographers and filmmakers in Shutter Stories. We're here today with Tristan Oliver, our Director of Photography specialising in stop motion who's worked on films including Chicken Run and Paranorman, but is here today to tell us more about the making of Wes Anderson's Isle of Dogs. It's very nice to meet you, Tristan. Now, obviously, making a film like Isle of Dogs is a, a massive undertaking. Can you talk us through the whole timeline of a stop motion film from beginning to end? So on a, on a stop frame movie, as with all movies, you start with a script. So the, the script is written and hopefully it has a beginning, a middle and an end, although that doesn't always happen. And then from that, um, two things sort of happen simultaneously. People are cast and the storyboard starts to be drawn. And then from the storyboard, then we, we make the animatic and then the voice record is kind of plopped over the top of the animatic just to see whether that's working. And then the process of character development starts. So then we're, we've got concept artists who are drawing up the characters. And then from those, maquettes are made. So a maquette is essentially a, a little statuette of that character. And a set of maquettes is made so that you can view them in relationship to each other to make sure that that child is the right size next to his parents or her parents or her dog or his dog. And the interrelationships of look of characters is very important. So if you have a family, do they actually look like a family of characters? Do they look good from the back? Do they look good from the side? Are their eyes the right colour? Are their eyes the right size and the right height? So all these things are considered. And then you start to work on costume. So then you get your miniature costume makers in and make sure that the costume design actually works in cloth. Now, can the puppet lift its arms above its head wearing that dress, for instance? Or does, or for that shot where they lift their arms above their head, does that dress need gusseting under the arms to enable that? What is the hair like? Let's bring in a miniature wig maker. There are actually people who do nothing but make wigs for stop frame. So what's their hair made of? Is it, is it dyed goat's hair? Is it horse hair? Is it human hair? So this process is going on and we're still nowhere near making the movie. And then we start drafting for construction. So the first set plans start coming in. And of course, that is also driven by a process of image library, concept artist, lots and lots and lots of that. And then how big is this thing? So every set after it's been drafted, or actually before it's been drafted, when it's in rough sketch state, is then built in essentially cardboard and the crew stands round it and we all go, well, the animator can't get in there, so we're going to need a trapdoor there. I can't light through there, so can I have a window there? And you can't paint that that colour because that's going to look really dark. So that process of set development happens as well. And by this point, we're kind of jogging towards starting to shoot. So then all those maquettes then have to be made as puppets. So you get the first key puppets coming out. And of course, that is a process of building an armature, an animatable ball and socket jointed armature to go inside that approved sculpt that does everything you need it to do. So if that's a very top heavy fat bloke, when he stands up, 
will those ankle joints support the weight or will you keel forward? And if, they are, if the ankle joints don't support the weight, do we have to redesign what's inside him a bit and reduce the mass at the top or do we make his ankle joints thicker or do we make his feet bigger? And there's thousands and thousands and thousands of tiny questions leading towards this puppet, which is animatable, that goes in this set and then we start to think about shooting it. Eventually you have your toolkit, you have your puppets, you have your sets, you have all your motion control equipment, all your lights, whatever, and you put the puppet on the set and the animator goes in and you shoot your first shot and everyone goes, oh, great, that's absolutely fantastic. So this is your second film working with Wes Anderson. Can you tell us a little bit about your relationship with him? I actually approached the producer on Fantastic Mr Fox before I really knew Wes at all. In fact, I didn't really know about Wes. I was sort of strangely ignorant of his works at that point. Um, but I had heard that they were setting up a stop frame production in London. And so I went to see the producer and showed him my reel. And I think she showed my reel to Wes and... I consequently got the job. It took a bit longer than that, but, you know, I got the job. Uh, and then process of working with Wes is unconventional, let me say, because Wes likes to be physically remote from the animation process. And I think he likes to be physically remote from the animation process because... He's not particularly interested in whether it's difficult or not. <laughs> so he doesn't, he doesn't want to see how hard it is. I think he just wants to say, I want you to do this, and then you have to find a way of doing it. So we have arrived at a way of working, which on Fantastic Mr Fox was unusual and to an extent frustrating, um, but I think every one of us who worked on that movie, who have now worked on this movie, entirely knew what we were getting. And you don't sign up for a Wes Anderson movie thinking you're going to make anything other than a Wes Anderson movie. I mean, that is how it is. So there are, you know, there are many advantages to having done Fantastic Mr Fox. And I think, you know, all of us are much more comfortable working with everyone else. So my relationship with Wes is now entirely trust-based, I would say. He trusts me to do what he wants to do, and that's very important for both of us. So was making Isle of Dogs very different to other stop-motion projects you've been involved with? Well, stop-motion animation is a fairly rarefied film form anyway, so I mean you're automatically into the realms of things that are pretty special. There is so little of it made that the sort of options you have in terms of equipment and things like that have to be tailored and customised to create tools that you know are useful for us. In terms of whether this film was significantly different from any other stop frame feature film, they're always a little bit different, but the, the skill set is, is pretty much the same. And, you know, myself and my crew, we're, we're put in place because we know how to solve those problems. So from that point of view, it was uh, a new and exciting project, but in terms of technical challenges, it, it wasn't anything too terrifying. So with that in mind, did you try to push the boundaries of what was possible with stop-motion animation technically in this film? Mm, that's a very interesting question. In terms of pushing boundaries with stop-motion, I think Wes's approach is quite traditional. So there's not a lot of high-tech 
um, solutions to what he wants. In fact, what he's really after is to achieve as much as possible in camera. So things that we're very much used to solving by using visual effects, post-production, we're now going back to where we were perhaps 30 years ago and creating those effects on set in front of the camera. So all those organic things that are very difficult to do in animation, such as rain and smoke and fire and fog and that, anything that has organic movement to it is very difficult to make as an animated element because that very organic quality is very difficult to reproduce. So you have to find ways of doing that and they very deliberately have a, a handmade feel to them. So it's, it's, it's kind of resurrecting old techniques. So, you know, typically we're making fog out of cotton wool and we're making water out of cling film and it's just finding ways to get those materials to behave in a realistic fashion. So how important is it that you keep things running on schedule? Is it sort of critical or everything gets very expensive and it all runs out of sync? Uh, no, not necessarily. I mean, I think you, you need to be aware of the sort of scale of production that we have here. I mean, we typically shoot on any of these productions for the thick end of two years. And we would be shooting with anything up to 50 units. So we've got 50 cameras running, 50 sets simultaneously. So if we're losing time in any one place, we're normally making it up somewhere else. You know, if you've got 10% of your units taking longer it doesn't really matter, you know, you, you, you catch up in the end. But also typically, you know, the people who work on these productions kind of know how to do that stuff. So it's merely finessing it to get it into a look that the director wants. And one, might, one director might want a different kind of clean film to another director. So it's just about finessing something that you kind of know how to do anyway. So how does capturing a stop-motion scene work in terms of time and manipulation of puppets and numbers of photos? OK, well, um, as in all movies, there are 24 frames per second at normal running rate. So you have to decide whether you're going to animate every single frame or whether you're going to animate every other frame. So the Aardman approach, for instance, is to animate on what they call twos. So for every second of projected film, you have 12 animation positions on your puppet. Uh, we tend to work more on what we call singles, um, which means that there is animation on every frame. So the animator goes onto the set with their puppet and they pose up the first frame and they take a frame and then they move it and they take another frame. And if you're an Aardman, you'd probably take two frames and then move the puppet. But at the end of the day, you are running at 24 frames a second, just as you do in any filmmaking process. Uh, and it's, it's, it's how you manipulate that timing. You know, if the puppet is pausing, then you can afford to take more than one frame at once. And also shooting on doubles gives a certain look, you know, the Aardman look doesn't look clunky, but it has a certain super handmade quality that perhaps somewhere like Leica or us a little bit has less of. So it's, it's, it's a stylistic thing. But in terms of how long it takes, you know, have you got one puppet standing there blinking or have you got 70 chickens waving their arms in the air screaming, something like we had on Chicken Run, for instance? You know, that obviously takes weeks compared with a blinking puppet that might take a couple of hours. And what was the setup for Isle of Dogs in terms of numbers of cameras that you used and the number of stages that you had running compared to, say, Paranorman? 
Okay, so on Paranorman, we shot on 44 shooting stages, which meant that we needed 44 cameras on the studio floor at any one time. But we had about 80 cameras in total because the cameras have to be kept pristine in terms of sensor dirt because the sensor dirt shows up in a moving image. You know, if, if you take a still image, it's fine. You can clean that up in Photoshop. You can get rid of that sensor dirt. But because you've got action, because the camera is probably moving across the scene, that piece of dirt tracks across the image, can go across a character's face. So we have to keep the cameras very, very clean. So we have a sort of critical mass of cameras that go through a cleaning process after every shot to make sure they're absolutely clean as can be. Obviously, there's a certain amount of breakage, failure of various things on the cameras. So we, we always need to have enough cameras just to grab one off the shelf which is why we have so many. And then in terms of the, the lens set, um, anything between 150 and 200 lenses so that we can grab the right focal length when we need it. You know, we might end up perversely with half our units shooting on the same focal length lens. It's all really, really interesting. Um, and what kind of camera body did you use to shoot the movie? We were using the Canon 1DX. We went through a fairly rigorous testing process at the beginning of the job, which is something that we find ourselves having to do at the beginning of every job now, because since we have segued from shooting on 35mm to shooting on digital stills cameras, what we've got is a sort of upward curve of quality and development in the stills camera world to choose from. But none of those cameras is actually designed by someone with stop frame in mind. So we're constantly looking for the next better tool than the one we had before. So we tested um, two Sonys, two Nikons, two Canons on this. So we tested six cameras very rigorously. And that's not just about how the camera performs normally, it's how the camera performs over time. Because we keep the live view switched on almost constantly, because that is the image that the animator works to. So we're quite often forcing the camera to stay open so the live view is on constant feed. And that can have a very deleterious effect on the chip. And the cameras that we used up until this point did tend to suffer from heat on the chip if they were kept open for too long. And they would, um, the chips would, would react very badly to that. And so we'd have to cover them with fans to keep them cool. The other thing is just ambient air temperature makes a huge difference to how the chip reacts. You know, on a cold morning, your image will look very different colour temperature and density-wise from on a very hot afternoon. And of course, what we're looking for is consistency of image. And so we have in the past torn our hair out, you know, quite often spent hours waiting for the camera to come to the appropriate temperature to look right. But the 1DX was a significant improvement. It was super stable under temperature variation and it didn't suffer from being forced into live view all the time. And the other reason we went with it is because it interfaces very well with our software DragonFrame, which is the sort of now the industry standard image grabbing software that we use in animation. And you can literally plug and play the 1DX into that. So there's a choice to be made between DSLRs and cine cameras. Well, I mean, the problem with using cinema cameras, I mean, for instance, you know, if we went with an Alexa, uh, is we have to buy 80 of them. You would bankrupt yourself. You know, that, that, the amount of money we have dictates our choice of equipment. And so we have to get the best equipment we can for the money that we have. 
And, you know, that often involves um, speaking very nicely to manufacturers and getting deals and getting loan equipment as well. Um, but no, we, we, we couldn't conceivably service that number of cameras. And the other thing about a digital stills camera is it is an available off-the-shelf item. So in an emergency, you can run down to Westfields and buy one if you need one. But are there more technical challenges uh, when it comes to shooting stop motion with a DSLR? Okay, so in terms of shooting stop frame, you know, there are challenges which you are not presented with in the live action world. And the, the main issue is the size of what you're shooting. So everything you're shooting is very, very close to the camera. So if you're doing a close-up, instead of your actor being six feet from the camera, your, your puppet, your actor, is, could be six inches from the camera. And this compromises what you can do hugely with your lenses because you're working right down at the minimum focus end or even into the macro end of a lens. And that makes a huge difference to the depth of field or the depth of focus that you have available to you. So if I was shooting live action, if I was shooting you there in a close-up, I could happily have the aperture set at f4, f5.6, and you every part of your head would be perfectly in focus and beyond you would be in reasonable focus. When I've got a puppet right up to the minimum point of the lens, if I'm at f16 or f22, I might just about have full focus from nose to ear and everything else is mush. So if you want more depth of field, that becomes a challenge. So if you want, as I do, to make your world look as much like a real world as possible, you know, we're not making any concessions to the fact that we're shooting animation. It should just look like a nice movie. It shouldn't be in any way compromised because it's animation. Then you have to find ways of making your lenses work slightly differently or making the way you shoot different so that you can achieve that, that depth of look that you would expect if that puppet was six feet high. So jumping right back to the beginning here, how did you, how did you get started in stop motion? Entirely by accident, actually. I had been out of film school for a couple of years and I was shooting some pop promos and I knew some people at Ardman and I rang them to borrow some lights, you know, and they went, oh, are you doing anything next week? And I went, no. And they said, do you want to come and shoot a commercial? And I went, yeah, that'd be great. So it sort of went along. This is 25, I think. And, um, there I was shooting a 35mm commercial with Ardman. And, you know, at that point, Ardman was this intensely creative garage. I mean, it was tiny. It was a garage that they worked out of. And it was, we just never went home. You know, we'd be there till 3 or 4am just churning stuff out. Nothing was ever scheduled. So they'd call you in for a commercial and you'd say, how long is it? And they'd go, I don't know, like four weeks, maybe six weeks. You know, it's just like everything was just, you know, there was... People were excited by it, and it was a, a small group of people with a lot of very good ideas trying to make something exciting. And this idea that you can make animation look like real stuff was being driven particularly by Dave Sproxton, who was one of the partners in Ardman. Peter Lord was the animator and Dave was the cameraman and he was absolutely driving this cinematic sensibility and I was in there sort of at ground level with that. And so off we went and then they just kept offering me work and I sort of fell into it and I was good at it. 
And, you know, when you start your career, you're absolutely desperate to do stuff. And within three years, I was shooting the wrong trousers and then it just sort of took off from there. And how's the future of stop motion looking? I think it's as healthy as it's ever been at the moment. I mean, Ardman are still there and still producing feature films. Leica, of course, have come onto the scene and they are, they're a great game changer in terms of stop motion because they are another fixed, permanent stop motion production stage and they are huge. They can run two movies at once out of there. And they've gone from standstill to take off. I think they've made as many features in the last eight years as Arben have made in the last 20 years. They're good. As for what happens here at Three Mills, I don't know. I mean, we've, we've just finished the fourth stop frame feature here, but each one is very much its own thing. And it's just sort of happenstance that they've all taken place here with different directors and different people. But yeah, I mean, it's, you know, people, people like a bit of stop frame, but there's not much of it about. I mean, the skills base is very tiny. You know, there aren't many of us who do this. The people who do what I do is probably five. <laughs> and people who do what I do at the level I do it is probably three. So, you know, there's, there's not a huge amount out there. And do you think it's possible for anybody to start a career in stop motion cinematography? Can you just try it out at home? I don't know if you can try it at home. I mean, m- most of what goes on at home is for people who want to animate. I mean, I think, you know, most of the animators I've met started out in their bedroom as kids. I think if you want to be a cinematographer, probably the last thing you think about doing, because it seems so desperately unglamorous, is going into stop frame. People want to shoot Avengers. They don't want to shoot Chicken Run or Fantastic Mr Fox because although it's greatly admired, it doesn't seem very exciting. You know, Because people imagine the animation process to be unconscionably slow and rather dull. But as I've explained to you, it's huge. And so, you know, I have a crew of 25 servicing maybe 50 units and they are moving as fast as they possibly can 12 hours a day. Animation takes a long time, but animators are working as fast as they can. They're not working slowly. They're just, what they do takes a long time. And once they start animating, the crew are gone. So the set comes in, it's dressed, it's lit, motion control is worked out, any lighting changes are worked out, the animator goes in and is left entirely on their own with a button. They press the button and everything happens. If something goes wrong, they pick up a walkie-talkie. So as far as the rest of the crew is concerned, the studio floor is a febrile, busy, busy place. And what you learn from animation is accuracy because what you cannot do is take two. If there is any reason why something is taken again, it can only be that there is something wrong with the animation because if there is anything technically wrong, you have wasted maybe a month of that animator's time because you didn't get it right. So we need to make sure that before the animator presses the button for the first time, everything is perfect to everybody's satisfaction and everything is glued down, weighted down, strapped down. It is belt and braces top to bottom. And even if a bulb blows, that can be a problem. So, you know, we have, we have techniques for sorting out the slight colour temperature and exposure changes you get when a bulb goes. Because that, if that's in the middle of a big shot, we will, we will spend five hours getting that right. We won't just change the bulb and carry on. We will, get, we will sort that out. So it teaches you to be super accurate 
And I find when I when I move into the live action world, which I do on occasion with commercials and other movies, that that that's super useful. So I think we've only got time for one more question. So to wrap it up, what would be your top tips for people who want to get into stop motion animation? I think the first question is, ask yourself, is this what I really want to do? It's a lot of hours over a long, long time. And it can be very frustrating. I personally don't think that there should be any difference in the cinematography of a stop frame movie and a live action movie. So what you really need to learn to do is how to be a cinematographer and decide at some other point whether you want to specialise in being a stop-motion cinematographer, an underwater cinematographer, an aerial cinematographer, or just a guy who stands behind a camera and shoots some actors on a windy cliff top in November. It's all about what you see, and it's all about making things look beautiful. It's not always even about making things look right. It's, it's about art and aesthetics, and what you need to get to that point so you are free to use your innate artistry and your innate ability to make something look lovely, what you need is a huge amount of technical knowledge. Because unless you know how the camera works, unless you know the physical characteristics of the lenses you're using, then you will not have access to the full box of paints. And you also now need to know how the lot of the post software works. So it's a constant learning process, but you can't just pick up a camera and expect to make the best use of it. You might be able to frame nicely, but is your lens choice right and what is dictating your lens choice? And do you know when you pick that lens out of the box what it is capable of and what makes it special and what makes it right and what makes it wrong? So that basic hardcore photographic knowledge, which will see you through on a day-to-day basis, is what you need. Fascinating stuff. Thank you very much for your time, Tristan. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of Shutter Stories, you can rate and subscribe in the episode's listing. To find more stories and to find us on social, you can click on the links in the episode's description.